okay, we should be synced up there now. Now we've got basically got mind sharing telepathic abilities. <laughs> and we'll okay. put them to a great use of making a podcast together. You know, no <laughs> saving the world, no uh, oh, we, making lots of money. We don't need to actually discuss things now that we are telepathic. We already know each other's opinions, so we can just kind of sit in silence and say, really? Yep, that's the entire <laughs> podcast. There's all that, like, a low trumming sound in the background, like the sound effect for the hypnotone in Futurama, you know? And we, we ask listeners to just attune their mind to a certain frequency <laughs> if they want to be able to hear our thoughts. And we're back. Yes. So, uh, welcome, listeners, to Radio Morpork, the podcast where we uh, review, recount, analyze, rate, and generally ramble about Terry Pratchett's Discworld one book at a time. This week, I'm Colm. This week, he's Steve. And this week, we are talking about the illustrated Discworld novel, The Last Hero. A very, very interesting one. You must be having trouble coming up with ways of saying rate, analyze, rank, and review at this stage, because I feel like you do a different one every single week. <laughs> that's that's not true. Uh, that's true lack of organization <laughs> rather than any artistic decision. I, I always kind of feel envious towards the professionalism of podcasts who soup begin with the same, um, you know, really succinct spiel that just gets across whatever it is they do. And the moment we turn on our recorders i'm thinking oh shit what do i what is it i say that gets the idea across to people of what this <laughs> we, podcast is we should have more like kind of gorilla podcasting here like when we open them we open just up with a random scream it's like oh shit i've no idea what i'm doing with my life because to be fair we're all thinking it but anyway we're getting off topic let's talk about the last hero yeah yeah um so to recount the plot of this uh this one it opens with basically all of the luminaries and leaders of the well no sorry it actually opens with a brief account of fire being stolen from the gods um Mm. which is kind of like a a myth we're used to in lots of different mythologies and traditions in real life. The one I'm most familiar with, and the one I think they're referring to here, is Prometheus stealing fire from mm-hmm. the Greek gods. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, sorry, go on. From there, we jump into uh, I think it's Vetinari uh, who uh, has heard. Actually, hang on, I'm trying to remember how this goes. Now. It's, it's all it's the all the different Discworld leaders are sort of converging on Ankh Morpork, and they've heard the news that um, uh, Cohen and the Silver Horde, who had been ruling the Agadian Empire, are going to return fire to the gods, um, and they're all right, very worried yeah. about what this what what might happen and, and what it might mean. And uh, the Wizards mm-hmm. and Unseen University explain that basically it will destroy. Uh, Cardi Celesti, where the the gods live, and that will wipe out magic on the disc, which will then destroy the disc itself because uh, the disc basically needs magic to survive. Yeah, it's it. even like disrupting it for a second. I believe they say is uh, that will it's only it takes one second for it to be disrupted for the entire disc basically to fall apart. So they turn to Rincewind, who has had a couple of encounters with Cohen, to look for advice, and he basically gives a vague idea of what Cohen's intentions are, 
But as to how they'll actually stop them, uh, Veterinary uses his secret weapon, who we've seen on a couple of occasions before, uh, Leonard DeQuirm, uh, a psychotic inventor genius maniac, like the equivalent of a nuclear bomb in a fantasy setting, in a way, uh, to come up with a way to potentially get to Corey Celeste, which he comes up with fairly quickly, actually. A uh, couple of seconds, <laughs> I think it is. Yeah, 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 it develops. It's like, I, I think it might have been uh, based off some of the actual designs Leonardo da Vinci came up with for, like, Renaissance era would-be flying machines, and it's it's like a big yeah, wooden board. Right. And they're essentially going to launch it off the edge of the disc, and it will... Um, I, I was trying to get the grips of this. I suppose the thinking is that the disc has some kind of its own gravitational pull so it will like if you go off mm. you'll loop around it the way that their moon and sun orbit around the disc rather than just yeah. simply falling off into space completely and basically it'll loop around it and get enough generate enough centrifugal force that they'll come up the other side and sail up to Corey Celeste that's actually a nice callback to uh, the life fantastic which something very similar happens to Rincewind when he falls off the disc and he finds himself flung back up onto it but at the time I don't think he realises that's what happens and it's, well, it's I, a little unclear I think, I think it's suggested in Life Fantastic that it's the uh, the spell inside his head when he's got one of the eight great spells that that sort of work mm. magic to uh, teleport him back onto the uh, onto the disc although it doesn't really suggest I feel like, I feel like this might two be flowers survive too, but yeah, I, I personally feel this might be like somewhat retconning, kind of make a lot of sense in narratively in terms of the life fantastic. But I feel like here, because it, it syncs up so well with what happened there, I think that might be Terry Pratchett's kind of subtly nudging, oh, hey, here's how the world of this world works. And um, but, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I might be reading too much into that. But anyway, while they're doing that, while they're planning the building of this uh, ship, the kite, which will get them up here. Uh, we cut to the Silver Horde who have kidnapped a minstrel who uh, the reason being the reason that they're doing all this is because they want to be remembered. They're basically sick of uh, not having any more worlds to conquer, which I think is a reference to Alexander That's the Great. Right. Yes, thank you. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah. And Alexander wept for he saw there were no more worlds mm. to conquer. So, um, Although they give him a uh, oh, what's his name? Like a the bard alludes to a Discworld uh, equivalent, like Corylanus or something, and uh, the the yeah Emperor Carylinus and the Gordian Knot is that is a uh, is reference as mm -hmm. well. But yes, basically they they gotten old and they sort of want to go go out with uh, a bang. I suppose like get, <laughs> yeah, literally, and leave a legacy. Uh, but also they're really angry at the gods because they're, one of their number, old Vincent, died before the start of the mm. story. And basically they're, they're facing their own mortality and don't really know how to deal with it. And they feel very bitter uh, towards the gods because of this. Mm. Um, so back in Angmorpork, they recruit a small team to uh, fly on the kite. And it, it's Leonard, who of course is the only one who knows how to fly it. Rincewind, who volunteers because he knows if he doesn't, he'll just somehow end up going anyway. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and uh, Captain Carrot of the Night Watch because um, uh, because of course Carrot will do everything he has to to mm. save That's the world. A fun little team, little uh, Discworld Avengers theme there that they throw onto the kite. <laughs> yeah. 
And <laughs> while this is the team that they chose, once they actually uh, get into the kite and have started their orbit, they discover a fourth passenger in the form of the librarian who has fallen asleep on the kite. And this unfortunately results in the kite not having enough oxygen for all four members of the crew. So they're forced to make a bit of a pit stop on the moon, as you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so yeah, and once that happens, uh, they discover a new breed of dragon on the moon. It should be said that the kite is being powered by dragons eating a specific, uh, a certain type of um, sustenance that Leonard de Quirm has uh, concocted for them, which... Uh, mm-hmm. I think it gives them just the right amount of uh, ignition or something or combustion within their stomachs to power the kite. Uh, but once they get to the moon, they discover a new type of dragon who also breathe fire, albeit from the wrong end. And uh, <laughs> they use that. They, they use those dragons to try and land on Hori Celeste, which they do with extremely bombastic results. Okay. Um... Yeah, so from there we're back with the the Silver Horde who they encounter uh, Vena. Um, did you would you pronounce that Vena or Vena? Uh, I suppose Vena. I feel like she's a reference to Zena, so I think Vena. Zena, yeah. So yeah, I think yeah. it's Vena. I, I was I was pronouncing it Vena until I got the, like until that uh, parallel uh, occurred. Yeah. Yeah. So they uh, Vena, um, the Raven haired, uh, similarly retired elderly female barbarian hero. And evil Harry Dredd, who's a dark lord, they get into a scrap with him and his his minions, mm. um, and then he decides to go with them because they, he sort of feels disillusioned by the direction uh, heroism and barbarism and the world they lived in is going. That like no one follows the rules when they encounter dark lords anymore. You always let them escape so that they can live to fight another day, and you can have another scrap with them. And he always says. Uh, make sure to have stupid henchmen that will <laughs> let you escape and fight through them. And he, he doesn't feel these rules are being respected anymore. <laughs> so he decides to go with them too. Uh, but when they reach um, Cory Celesti, they realize that he has double-crossed them and let the gods know. But they're quite understanding of this because they feel like that since he's an evil overlord, that's sort of his, his job and they, they would expect nothing less. Uh, so they... They go on to Cory Celesti in the disguise as like minor uh, gods of their own. Um and when they, they, they reach the uh the kind of main uh, I suppose like the main hierarchy or aristocracy of the Discworld gods, who definitely see through their disguises but sort of humour them, and Cohen has to dice uh, with fate over his life. Fate throws a six, uh, and Cohen manages to uh, throw a seven by cutting the dice in half <laughs> while it's in the air. Uh, that's right. Uh, at that point, uh, it's around this point when the gods have confronted them on who they are, and they've basically had enough of all this. This is when uh, the kite holding Leonard Rincewind, Carrot, and the librarian crashes through the, do- the gates of Cory Celeste and lands basically at the gods' feet. And once this happens... Uh, our good friend Captain Carrot climbs out and attempts to arrest the Silver Horde. In in one of the best moments in the entire Discworld Super. <laughs> like I, I had never read The Last Hero before this and oh well we'll, we'll get back to it later, but I, I love that bit so so it's very, much. It's very um 
very atypical or very typical of Captain Kara. It's yeah, it works very well. But anyway, while they're doing this, it's such a ridiculous moment. And for a brief second, you're kind of thinking, oh, how is this going to go down? Until the Horde have a realization. Uh, keeping. Yeah, Rincewind tells them that the, the whole disc will, uh, you know, be destroyed completely. And they realize that will mean no one's left to sing about them. Mm. Um, but the, but the bomb they brought is just about to go off. That's right, yeah. Uh, well, um, they also realize, like, in challenge or in Captain Carrot challenging them, it's one hero versus seven. So it's a huge uh, disadvantage to him, a million to one chance that he could possibly win. And therefore, they have to let him win. That's just how it goes, apparently. So sticking with tradition. So anyway, once they realize all this, they kind of back down a little bit. But that's when they realize that the bomb has already been uh, lit so it's about to explode so they do the only thing heroes really know how to do and they leave with a bang they push the yeah, bomb yeah, they all, off yeah. the edge of Corey Celeste on Hamish's wheelchair mm, old Hamish's wheelchair uh, they all hop onto man Hamish's wheelchair and kind of use it like a, a sled uh, with the bomb on the back mm. and they go off the edge and just um, yeah, land in a giant fiery crater exactly yeah yeah and once that happens, uh, basically the gods give, even though they're very unhappy with Leonard de Quirin because he has been higher than the gods, uh, they decide they will punish him by forcing him to paint the Discworld equivalent of the Sistine Chapel, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they grant a boon to Captain Carrot in that they allow him and the rest of the crew to get back down to the Discworld. Uh, oh, and they also grant a balloon to Rincewind and the Librarian, which is a nice little touch. And once they get down to the end, it's left very ambiguous as to whether the Silver Horde survived. But uh, for the rest of the inhabitants, life more or less goes back to normal, including Leonard de Quirm, who manages to finish the Sistine Chapel in a matter of th- a matter of mere, a mere three weeks. Manages to finish it. Yeah, I think it's the Temple of the sm- of Small Gods mm-hmm. is their uh, um, equivalent. But we we get a scene where the the Valkyries come for the Silver yes. Horde to. Uh, take them away to the afterlife and they yeah but then kind of uh Vina has uh attacked one of the Valkyries and disguised herself as one of them and she uh threatens them and then while they're putting up with this the silver horse just you know feck them off their horses hop on the horses and ride off and basically say that they don't think they're dead so they're not going to uh count <laughs> exactly, dead. yeah <laughs> ride off into the but, sunset uh, um, well we'll come back to that later but that more or less wraps up the last hero and that's the story. Yeah, so before we do anything else, can I ask, so you had the um, the graphic novel edition of this. You had the one with all the pictures and illustrations included, right? Yeah. Oh, oh, very nice. Okay, super. I realized actually we should have had this as a YouTube video as opposed to a podcast, seeing as it's a visual novel that we're reading here. And then all of our listeners could look at us and say, oh, that's not how I imagined Stephen and Colin would look. And then be really annoyed by it. Whereas other people are like, oh, they did a brilliant job being on camera. You know? I thought Steve would have much kinder <laughs> eyes. But um, it's interesting now. So you, I'm glad that you approached this for the first time and you had basically the experience you're supposed to have reading it with illustrations. So I have this book back home. I didn't really want to order it again because it's very pricey to get because it's obviously a very big book. So instead, I got a PDF version of it. So I read this without illustrations. And Ah. I had a very 
I imagine I had a very different experience. I wanted to see how well it held up without the illustrations. Um, overall, I have to say, it's still a good story, but it definitely loses something without illustrations. I can tell that this was definitely something that was planned from the beginning to be, you know, a collaboration between artwork and narrative storytelling. It was never a case of, I'm going to tell a story and here are some nice illustrations to pepper on top of the story to kind of give it a little bit of flavor. You know, it's very much a collaborate, collaborative yeah. effort. Um, yeah, the illustrations aren't just an appendage to the story. They, they like, actually help tell it. Um, I, I meant to say when, we, when you have that part where uh, Ponder is telling the rest of the Yankmore Fork um, hierarchy, the guild leaders and so on, what will happen if, if magic goes away from the disc um, and he describes how everything will be destroyed and then you have oh. this uh, illustration uh, on the following page that's just a skeletal great Hatchulin and skeletal uh, world elephants carrying a sort of like molten ruin of a disc on their back and it's it's absolutely chilling and just really sets sets yeah. the stakes the sense of stakes also you have the fact that, that leonard's um how he paints the uh temple of, roof of the temple of small gods at the end is actually only explained through the illustration like in the illustration you see him with this again kind of leonardo da vinci-esque um sort of like flying machine that allows him to um rotate really quick and he almost has like a like a paints is it like a like a spray paints um yeah he has yeah. kind of spray paint device. Within the text you it's it's kind of alluded to that he's he somehow managed to do it, but you don't actually find out. Yeah, it just says someone says like, Oh, what's the problem if something happens? He says, No, he's finished and like finished, it's been three weeks. Like, you know, that's pretty much all the text gives you. So I don't want to, you know, I'm not like uh, saying that this is a lesser book because of that, because um, minus the pictures, it isn't as good because you can't really say that this is very much something that was always written with the idea that it was going to be uh, combined with the illustration. So you can't really take one from the other. I just wanted to see for myself how it worked by itself. And um, yeah, obviously it's not as good. You can't really judge this by its own mirror it's something that is supposed to be viewed with the illustrations so i'm i just i just wanted to see how it would work and i'm not holding that against the book at all just wanted to see how it mm-hmm. works so that's the main thing that i took away from that but um the illustration seeing as this is the first time that you saw it or you've um read it so how how was it for you because i i obviously i read this when it came out like years ago but i'd love i'd love to hear your take on it first on the illustrations more than anything else well just one one thing with the illustrations is that not only do you get them but you get these little extra textual flourishes by terry pratchett like there's one um one page that has uh like leonard's sketches of the creatures they could encounter yeah. in, in, you know on the moon around space and Rinswind speculates about, like, I, I think it's just before they find the librarian, they're wondering, you know, they're losing air, and they know there's more weight on board. Rinswind speculates that it's like imaginary hole borer monster that has attacked the, the ship. And you see Leonard's sketch of it, and it, it's a, like like a squid with a kind of, um, what are those narwhals, the kind of, you know, the whales with horns? Um, it, like, it has one of their horns coming out of its mouth, and that's a. Borer Imaginaris Horrendous, Imaginary Ho Borer, as yet undiscovered, possibly evolved from squid washed over the rim. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just says, note one, 
if such a t- creature invades the ship, vital crew split up in order to search for it. <laughs> oh, I love that. I, that. That's fantastic because I've recently been playing um, Alien Isolation on PlayStation, so that syncs up oh, very wow. well with like the kind of vibe that that's going for. Um, There's also this great bit where you get a, a you know, a picture of the, the pantheon of the gods looking down on their, their game board of disc. And there's a note detailing um, who the gods are and what they um, represent, I suppose. So from left to right here, we have, I, I, love, I love this, Sisyphus, goddess of the afternoon. Um, is, is kind of like an, she's drawn like an Egyptian-style goddess. Alfler, the crocodile mm. god, we know him. Flatulus, <laughs> the god of winds. Uh, Fate, um, I, I suppose, is kind of the main antagonist by default. And familiar with him from mm. the early Rinsen books. Eureka goddess of saunas, snow, and theatrical performances for fewer than 120 people. I, I think I might have to begin worshipping her. Uh, Blindio, the chief of the gods, Libertina, goddess of the sea, apple pie, certain types of ice cream, and short lengths of string. Uh, the lady is obviously a, well, you shouldn't say what she's goddess of. Biblius, goddess of wine and things on sticks. Uh, Patina, goddess of wisdom. Topaxi is just like kind of small, very angry looking. Um, looks like like sort of Aztec god. Uh, he looks like in you will get this, and uh, maybe some of our listeners will as well. He looks like like Belhamel, that monster from Final <laughs> Fantasy VIII that should fight wandering yeah. around Galbadia. Uh, but he's god of certain mushrooms and also great ideas that you forgot to write down and will never remember again. And of people who tell other people that dog is God spelled backwards and that this is in some way, uh, think this is in some way revelatory. <laughs> Amazing. Um, we have Bast, who's a cat god and is, of course, then god of things left on the doorstep or half digested <laughs> under the bed. And lastly, Nuggan, who we'll see more of in Monstrous Regiment. And he's uh, a local god, but also in charge of paper clips, correct things, and the right place in small stationary desks and unnecessary paperwork. I love that, but also um, one of my favorite bits that I remember reading when I was reading this book first, it's uh, seeing the almost rogues gallery of uh, Evil Harry Dredd's henchmen are an absolute delight to look at. Because I remember, I was trying to figure out, I remember back when I got the book first, like, oh my God, who's my favorite here? I think my favorite I always ne- uh, rest on is uh, your armpit is uh, even in the book is like uh, and who's this guy your armpit hi yeah or yes I'm armpit <laughs> no, your armpit it's just a oh, brilliant play on words but yeah what how do you feel about the this artist compared to Paul Kirby oh Paul Kirby sorry no he's Paul Kirby uh, Josh Kirby is the one who done the covers um, yeah you know it's a funny thing and um, I I like I made some tentative efforts to look this up, but couldn't really find out. But like Josh Kirby, we just saw he done the cover to uh, Tifa Time, and that would be, I believe, the last cover he done before he died. Um, and Paul Kidby is um, like Pratchett has obviously been working with him in other capacities for some time, but the fact that he trusts him uh, to do this complete illustrated uh, book, you know, like Kidby's only going to begin doing the covers now. And uh, he starts off with this, uh, like this book, where as you say, the illustrations are huge, uh, hugely important to your experience of the book. I love um, his illustrations. I think a lot of the Discworld characters, not quite all of them, but a lot of them, he captures 
uh, how I think they look. Um, you know, like I, I think we talked about this before, like Josh Kirby, the wildness and color of his um, art style captures yeah. something of the spirit of the Discord books very well. But uh, Paul Kidby, I think, does a better job of just capturing like how you'd imagine they'd look like you know i'd, I'd gladly watch a Discworld animated um film with all of the characters mm, animated yeah. the way Paul I, I do draws agree them. with you like i mean i always have a soft spot like for like the way the books were drawn before like you said it's a good way of describing it the wildness of it all how it just uh it portrays the um sort of insane whimsical nature um of the world that uh the characters inhabit but um like you say he does uh paul kid paul kidby sorry is it paul kidby paul kidby he has this knack for um i feel like he does a better job than most in this kind of position where you're you're set the task to suddenly uh illustrate these characters that people have loved for a really long time and nearly always you'll get people saying oh that's not how i imagine him at all i would not see him that way but he does a pretty bang on job here. Like there's no one here that I think really I'm upset with the way they look. Like even the likes of, um, I remember one, I wouldn't even call it an issue, but I remember when I saw the picture of Captain Carrot, I thought that's not quite how I pictured him. But now after seeing that picture so many times of Carrot, like with this, you know, chiseled God of a man, like with like a, army i think it was the haircut in particular that got me the fact that it's so short i'm like oh that's not how i imagine carrot at all but it, it is an accurate representation of like the character of carrot and like how he is described yeah. so now i'm very much at home with that depiction of carrot so yeah he looks solid in every sense yeah. he looks like you'd break your knuckles if you tried to punch him yeah. on any part of his body but also he's like solid i don't know morally and personally um, I like Kidby's uh, allusions to classical art pieces, like you have the great, what is it, the, the creation of man mm. with Adam holding his hand out to God, but in this case it's Cohen flipping off <laughs> uh, the Discworld gods. Yeah, the, um, um, the an- anatomy of the, the human body as well, but it's with uh, Rizwind yeah. looking ex- extremely like uh, haggard and uh, malnourished. Which is and the scream with Rincewind. That and is Winter amazing. Oh, I love that part. This that's one of my favorite illustrations in the entire book. The scream with Rincewind, just like on the moon and realizing the predicament he's in. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, you really have to commend like the fact that it wasn't. It isn't just like lazy illustrations to go with the book. Like it really does feel like an integral part of this entire book. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Look, we, when we read Eric back uh, a long time ago, you told me that that was originally an illustrated novel, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Josh Kirby done the illustrations to it. And it's funny because, you know, coming like coming back to that, that never felt like it was necessary. I mean, neither of us actually read the illustrated version of it, but it didn't feel like you were missing something, you know? Like, it just felt like a mm-hmm. narrative that wasn't... Per- particularly up to the same standard as the rest of the books in the Discworld series. Um, but it didn't feel like it was missing something, you know? Whereas, I- Yeah, well, it's it's hard to judge when we when we read it without the illustrations, but I did remember, I remember finding one of them in a, a bookshop and, and looking through it. And, like, the sense I got is that, again, it's, it's kind of very reflective of uh, our thoughts on Kirby and Kidby's art styles, is that, like you do get a bit more out of the illustrated version of Eric compared to the non-illustrated version because these, it's such a like 
mad, colourful romp of a book that having these huge, wild, really busy um, pictures that Josh Kirby would draw, you know, where there's a load of characters and a load of mm. things going on and a big sense of motion about everything he uh, he illustrated. Having that contributes to the general uh, sense or, like, I don't know, appeal of Eric, but it doesn't, it isn't move, progressing the plot or augmenting the plot in the same way that Kidby's illustrations do mm. in um, Last Hero. Mm. No, I agree with you completely. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about the actual plot of the book now and just in general. like, Sorry, it, one one final note on the illustrations because this is quite easy to miss and, and I did first time around until I saw it point down the line is when you have an illustration of Leonard um, looking out his window in Ankh Morpork and uh, it's, it's very early on um, and he's got all the birds uh, coming to him, um, which for one acts as a, I suppose, a reference point that gets called back to later with that beautiful line when he says to the gods, um, "You was it you you made me fly when you showed me birds." Yeah, yeah. Um, but one of the birds is a parrot with dog written on it. Oh, what? That's amazing. And that's a. a <laughs> A, a, a reference to Chamberlain the truth when they were looking for the patrician's dog mm. and you hear Satyrissa saying to someone no sir that's a parrot just because you've written dog on the side <laughs> of it doesn't make it a dog that's brilliant oh that's fantastic <laughs> I don't remember that at all I'm gonna have to, yeah I might need to well I, I don't I think I was looking online trying to find some of these illustrations but like uh, before uh, I wrote my notes on it, but I could only find a select few. I couldn't find all of them, so yeah, it was a bit of a shame. I was I was a bit sad about that, but eh, it was fine. I meant I could focus on the book itself. Um, how how did you like the story then, as the first time? Because I remember I always enjoyed this. Um, it's 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 obviously not going to kick any of the top novels off the top space, but it's a really enjoyable book. So how I I feel? How do you how did you feel about it? I really really liked it. Um. I thought, like, we're in an era of farewells and new beginnings for the disc world now. We had the last Longer Witches book with Carpe Jigalum. Mm. We had, like, it's not the last Watch book, but we said The Fifth Elephant sort of feels like the end of an era for a watch. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, who knows, possibly maybe at that time he did think of making it, you know, the last one until he, he got more ideas. You have, like, The Truth starts this industrial revolution period of the disc world where there's a lot of modernization and, and these... uh advancements and developments from from around worlds like newspapers and uh, um, post offices and so on are no longer just things that show up for one book before being banished away in apocalyptic style and the status quo being restored you have this world actually changing you have the last death and susan book with teeth of time and now we have what's a farewell to the kind of early sword and sorcery uh disc world um like very clearly with the uh the narrative of the heroes wanting to be commemorated and wanting to go out and fearing aging and fearing your own mortality. Mm. And also with Rincewind um, featuring heavily. I, I really like that he's more um, genre savvy than, here than he was in The Last Continent. Yeah. Like that bit where he goes to veterinary and says, look, I know I'm going to end up on this. I'm. Oh, he says, I'm not volunteering. Um, I, I, I think we said one of our frustrations with The Last Continent was well, he keeps alluding to the fact that he's been doing this adventuring for such a, well, adventuring, doing this running away from adventuring for such a long time. Um, in, in a way that kind of makes it seem like he's referring to even more than the, the books you've already read featuring him. 
And yet he just seems to know like nothing about it and seems to be continually surprised when the most, um, you know, developments that should be entirely predictable to him uh, by this stage occur. Mm. Uh, and here he's not like here. He's very savvy and it makes him a really good foil to the horde. Like he's able to kind of talk them down at the end and it makes him a good foil to Carrot as well, who and, and uh, to a certain extent Leonard, who are in their own ways, like really kind of have this sense of childlike wonder and naive optimism and also represent the later iterations of the, the Discworld, like Carrot being the, you know, the watch mm. and Leonard kind of just largely tying into the sense of technological advancement in the Discworld that you have them paired off with this, you know, the disc's first hero, uh, <laughs> you know, quote unquote, um, this first hero made for this, <laughs> yeah, made for this nice clash of, of styles. Mm. It, yeah it is it's it's a very very deliberate callback i think to all those really particularly the color of magic and the light fantastic it feels very much like a reference point like to like it seems to be referencing those books particularly especially the massive focus on um cohen and his horde which feels very much in the same tone of what you would expect from early terry pratchett you know just kind of uh a very sword and sorcery, like, you know, not very political at all. Uh, you know, fun with um, the fantasy tropes that you'd expect from, you know, Tolkien or something like that. Uh, I do, I, I really like, it's it's a very nice send-off, but by the same token, it's also a nice beginning. And I think at the time of writing, I feel like Terry Pratchett was deliberately leaving it quite ambiguous as to how things were going to go from here. Because I like how it's called The Last Hero, but, and, you know, considering the fact that Cohen is on the front cover, it's very easy to assume that that's him that they're referring to. But I imagine when I was reading it, I was starting to think, I wonder if this is a bit of a reference to, this could kind of be a reference to the uh, Carrot as well, who's kind of, feels a bit like Cohen's t- passing the torch on a little bit too. Um doesn't make a huge amount of sense considering later books, considering Carrot doesn't really feature in any of them. Uh, well, he does, but briefly. He's not, like, uh, center stage or anything like that. But you know what I mean? Like, it just it feels a little ambiguous in how things are progressing. And, again, in the fact that the way uh, it's implied that Cohen lived, but it's not 100% obvious if he did or not. Um, it, 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 does, it does say that, um, oh, we don't think we're dead, so, you know, we're not. But that could be very easily be something that's just happening in the heads of Cohen. Like I imagine, if the Horde had their idea of heaven, it would probably be in them flipping, giving the bird to death and saying, "Right, we're going off to do our own thing." So yeah, very true. I, I can imagine like that just being right. That's their end now. They just think that they're continuing like this for good. But yeah, um, so yeah, it, it feels it's 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 a very satisfying book in many ways. A lot of times when things are left ambiguous, it can sometimes feel a bit frustrating that you feel like, oh, this writer just doesn't know what they're doing. They're just leaving things open for a sequel, like, you know, just because they don't know if they'll be able to write a sequel or whatever. But here it just feels like, it feels very professionally done. The fact that, um, you know, Terry Pratchett is very much aware at this point that his books have all got a bit of political satire to them. So he's writing very different books from the likes of Color of Magic and the like Fantastic and Sorcery. Very, very different. They're all very industrial. They're all very, uh, they're all very much a knowing reflection of society as it stood at that time. So it's nice that he had this last flourish 
before more or less moving right into that. Because after this, I think um, we basically, we have so many uh, books like uh, uh, Making Money, Raising Steam, uh, the all, all these books that are just like focusing so much on like the modern day. So it's just nice that it just, this very much just feels like a big last hurrah, like literally going out with a bang in like the most literal sense imaginable with this enormous explosion at the end that, you know, is the red herring that keeps the entire story uh, going. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, contrast, you said how he contrasts carrot and the horde is, is really interesting because um, there's this part early on when, Veterinary talks about uh, the nature of heroism mm. and specifically the horde's heroism, and he he says about how, you know, what essentially like like a sort of history is written by the winners and calling out the the moral um grayness of of the horde like that oh well the people they kill are by nature villains because they have killed them yeah yeah um and you know when they go around pillaging and robbing temples it all seems so romantic and exciting but really you know essentially are they just like like thieves with charisma mm. um so it it's like a different very different vision of heroism where that the horde are heroes because how they stand kind of apart and above from society and they just go in robbing and taking what they will and you know they're sort of like all like Nietzsche and Ubermensch you know um just doing what the normal people can't and what the normal people want to do. And then in Carrot, you have a hero who's very embedded in society. You know, as a watchman, he's uh, he's an essential part of the fabric of Ankh-Morpork society. He's very, you know, um, law-abiding and polite and civil. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he sort of more acts as, um, I suppose, the conscience of society within it, you know? Uh, it's like, essentially... The Horde are Batman and Carrot is Captain America. <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, that's a fairly accurate uh, summation of their characters, I have to say. But it's interesting that, like, despite the fact that Veterinary has this whole spiel about how uh, how the people how Cohen who they label themselves as heroes, but when you kind of break down what it is they actually do, they're you know, essentially criminals who have assumed the role of heroes. Uh, it's it's interesting that the way the book ends, it kind of, it turns Cohen into a martyr, and uh, that's a good thing. Because I think that that works very very well in this particular narrative because Cohen and the Horde are so focused on what the people remember, so the life of Cohen and the actions of Cohen and the Silver Horde are somewhat representative of like the early uh, Discworld novels in a way that like, you know, they might've been a little rough around the edges. Like, you know, when you consider the list that we have, how many of the very, very early books, they're not as good as later ones, but they also have that wild fun nature that like the yeah. later books lose a little bit because even though they're better written, they're also, because they're so, you know, grounded in a world, they feel less wild. So, I don't know. I just, I feel like Cohen is like very much like the figurehead for that early style of writing, which Terry Pratchett is still very fond of. And I think 
I get, I definitely get like a sense of like an almost wistful nature that he wishes he could go back to it, but he knows that like he can't just abandon this world that he spent up to like 30 books creating now at this point because he's too invested at this point. He can't just say, okay, I'm going to write a wild story about a place that I've never mentioned existed before because he has to fit that into the mythology that he has. So this is just, you know, a wonderful, wonderful callback to all those in a put together and presented to us in a very intriguing and different way so yeah the, there's a sense of like um legacy about it in that now we have the, this new disc world there's a stronger sense of continuity you know things happen like the development of a newspaper the development of the um uh, postal service will later see the, the growth of the city watch and a stick and grow on whereas the early disc world books they were very episodic uh you know with the uh, exception of color of magic fading into life fantastic but they don't leave any lasting imprint on the discworld you know yeah. I, I think myself and rose mentioned this when we talked about uh life fantastic or one of the books shortly after it that like the star in the life fantastic is one of the few worldwide events we see on the disc but no one else ever refers to it again you know yeah. like you don't have anyone saying oh I remember that a couple of years ago that red star came up hmm. So things happen in those early books and they're just so fleeting and they're gone. And that's sort of like the horde and their legacy, you know, yeah. and they're searching now for something that will give them that sense of immortality. And actually, I remember when we um, when we done interesting times, we expressed our frustration about how that book deals with some really interesting aspects of legacy and the nature of heroism with Teach trying to partly trying to civilize the horde but also trying to you know he has that rant at them where he's like the boys i talk to think you're legends this is something you can finally do that will make a difference mm. and then when lord hong and the rest of it attacks the book sort of sidesteps that whole argument you know mm. and uh like cohen says we got the empire your way we'll keep it our way and then they do but then you never find out what what they do afterwards so it's left kind of completely unanswered as to like well, like, have they created a legacy by now ruling and possibly reinventing this empire? Or, you know, have they just not understood uh, what Teach was talking about altogether, which is kind of suggested by the way Cohen's talking to him when he says, oh, those kids you mentioned, they wouldn't think we'd run away. Um, so all all of that sort of stuff is tackled here. And I think it's tackled beautifully. That, that part at the start when the, the Horde find Cohen sitting on, like, the... Uh, is it like like the barrel or by a cairn of a an old dead nameless hero mm. and he says he's remembering him and they say well who is he and he doesn't know and he says somebody's got to remember him yeah yeah, uh, yeah. and then when when I think when the uh, the bars the bard or evil Harry are asked them later about why they're uh, wanting to blow up the gods and you know they're saying all this stuff oh because this and because that and, and Cohen says because they let us get old yeah um and that I think that's like that's been the, at the essence of Cohen at that said you know, from when he came in, like, fantastic all the way through is Pratchett having this joke about, like, kind of what happens to a, a a hero after they, you know, after they grow old. And, like, it's it's played off for, like, humorous ways, like, this idea of, well, like, if he's managed to get old, he's actually really, really good at it. <laughs> and people underrate that, you know. Yeah. You have, like, physical comedy with his with his diamond teeth and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, like, Hamish's deafness and other things. But... Um, you also have this sense of like, what is, uh, like, what, what does a hero do? They have this fleeting part of, if they do manage to live a long life, they have this fleeting part of it where they 
are and can be a hero. Mm. Um, it, I, I won't go too down this rabbit hole because I'm sure many of our listeners are sick of me referencing football at every chance I get. <laughs> but um, there's there's a documentary out now about Diego Maradona um, that I'm, I'm hoping out to see quite soon. But I was thinking about it the other day about how like he's just become this sort of uh, you know bloated wreck playing on past glories. Like he he moves around the uh, the world now. Maradona he's like like an exiled. Russian aristocrat after the revolution, you know, people are kind of willing to put him up and uh, rich people all around the world have him live with them or live off them for, for a little while. And then he gets bored or they get bored and he just moves on. And I was thinking how like, he's made many decisions, made many bad decisions and also uh, been very unfortunate to be, uh, I suppose, surrounded by bad people a lot of times in his life. I don't want to get too judgmental about him one way or the other, but I was thinking of kind of the tragedy of like, he's, what is he like 50 60 uh, he's in his maybe 60 now and not late 50s anyway uh like so he had this like one short period of his life where he was like the best in the world at the most popular thing in the world and he could do things no one else could do and the whole rest of his life must just be like looking back at that and yearning for it and trying to come to terms with how he'll never have that again. And what do you do with the rest of your life? And you, you have it with uh, athletes of all different stripes of, they do have this short period where, you know, they can perform uh, to their best at what they love. And afterwards, I mean, some of them uh, are able to kind of find uh, fulfilling employment and fulfilling life afterwards. But I mean, a lot of them, uh, not only suffer financial struggles, also suffer emotional struggles, trying to come to terms with that. Mm. So, Cohen's and the Horde's struggle to, I don't know, reconcile their aging with their heroism and what they do in their life really struck a chord with, it, with me in that way. It's like, okay, we may not have any aging barbarian heroes bestriding the streets of Dublin or, yeah, or, or I'm sure Dustin, of Kagoshima for that matter. I've seen Dustin the Turkey <laughs> but, going around a couple of times. He's pretty old at this stage now, so I kind of view him in the uh, same way. <laughs> age will never wither, Dustin. <laughs> You'll have second life every Christmas. <laughs> uh, true, true. Um, yeah, no, but um, but yeah, yeah. That I suppose that like that sense of uh, living past your prime and trying to find meaning and trying to um, reconcile yourself with your own mortality. Uh, yeah, I just I, I found it really moving and really thoughtful the way it's dealt with here. Mm, yeah, I do. There was one thing that I don't know if I'd say it irks me, but I found it a little odd in there. There was one point where. Uh, the muse or the bard, sorry, he's talking about legacy and you know how people remember other people. And at one point, he says that um, often we're remembered through our children. And Cohen just kind of dismisses that very, very quickly. I I can't remember exactly what he says, but he's just kind of like, no, no, that's that's rubbish. No, we're you're remembered by what you know your your legacy is what people remember, not by like your children at all, which. Is, just seemed very strange to me because you know he has children at this point so i would have thought that that's something that he would have embraced a little bit like it didn't seem like a knowing sly nod it just seemed very very dismissive so that bit struck me as odd um it's well i'd say i I think it could be two things or or both Uh, one it could be a a, like pratchett kind of shooing that um potential uh, reader objection out of the way in that like we've met at least one of his children in Conina in sorcery mm. oh um, yes so 
you know, he's raising this and then addressing it and then just moving the plot on. But also, I think it could back to that sense of like that, like Nietzschean Ubermensch of the of the the silver um, horde kind of embody of like, oh, it's normal people are, you know, they have kids and they raise them and they die and then their kids remember them and have kids and you know, but like that's not good enough for us. We're going to leave a mark that like the whole world is going to remember. You know, we're not we're not just we're not good men. We're great men, yeah. and it's it's not going to be enough to be remembered in this you know, quite intimate, personal way, uh, anyone who has children, I remember. And actually, it's funny, because after that, uh, when he's talking about, well, how, when Colin is talking about how people remember him, he puts great stress on ordinary, ordinary people, how ordinary people remember, you know, other people. Mm. And that is, that is sort of true, because you can think of all the achievements, like all the people throughout history, like the things that people have done. And, you know, if you're in a very specific field, you might be able to rattle off, like, say, Oh, that great microbiologist who was like, he did great things in the 50s, but obviously the ordinary man wouldn't have a clue who that is. And it is actually a quite pointed thing. Like I found myself thinking of um, when we were studying Ulysses and how, do you remember how James Joyce was saying, this is going to be a book for the common man. Oh, how yeah. wrong he was. <laughs> Hopelessly optimistic of him. <laughs> but... Um, Although as we record this, we're one day behind Bloomsday. So, I mean, that's, that's at least always one... Uh, one day a year where uh, you know a lot of people kind of get to get to appreciate it on some level but no you're exactly right like that it, it is it's it's a book like uh that's kind of canonized and um celebrated but it sounds like so many people haven't read it or would be very daunted by the, the thought of reading it in the way that yeah you have people in these very particular fields like in the quote-unquote high arts mm. or uh really detailed sciences that will be celebrated among their peers but ordinary people you know, wouldn't uh, know better, or I suppose wouldn't, even if they'd heard of them, they wouldn't really, like, know enough about that field to appreciate them, you know, the same way that, like, you or I might be able to, like, what's his name, like, Rudolf Nurev, I know he's a, I'll probably mispronounce his name, oh, he's a famous Russian ballet dancer, mm. uh, but I couldn't tell you what made him so great at ballet, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's unusual, like, but, like, Having said that, you know, you could say, ask most, well, now this is coming from like someone who watches a lot of films. So maybe I'm like a being optimistic in this, but I imagine most people would be able to tell you, like, if you said, well, I suppose someone like Orson Welles, most people would be able to say, oh, Orson Welles, yeah, he's a famous person or like, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, you know, I'm trying to think of like people that every person like knows, like, but then the Beatles, the Beatles, there you go. Perfect example. That's something that like every ordinary person knows of because they've made that mark in like mass culture. Um, it's a little different with Cohen, obviously, but I suppose their version of mass culture would be folk songs. So I guess, yeah, that would make a lot more sense that um, how the common people remember them is through this insane uh, task that they've undertaken and like, being remembered in what is probably the most common form of media or entertainment in like this fantasy world, other than say moving pictures, which doesn't really work plays, which is kind of something reserved for <laughs> high society in um, the disc world novels. Like there is the only thing that you can really get that travels all around the discs probably would be something like songs or poems. So yeah. like, it does make sense that this would be the way they want to be remembered by ordinary people. It's just an interesting thing that like the the focus on ordinary people and I think it's it's you know it's it's a fairly um observant it's 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 a good observation to make in how uh 
you know, how people's legacy are remembered, how it is, you know, recorded in history. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's, um, to be honest, I don't think there's a huge much more amount to say about this book because it is it is much shorter than the usual novels that we have. It's only about, what, 100 pages or so? Uh, yeah, like 170 in mine. But uh, yeah, I've got a fair amount more to say. First of all, oh, I, sorry, I was yes, continue. Sorry, trying to, to ponder. Um, I really love uh, Leonard DeQuerm in this book. Um, like he's mm. been a fun background character in uh, a lot of the previous ones, particularly Jingo. He has he has a bit of time to shine in, mm. and we we very much get a sense of him of this uh, genius, this savant who's not very worldly wise and is quite naively optimistic uh but here he's front and center and i was i was thinking because he's um how would you put it like uh we have someone like carrot in the plot who's sort of perfect but the joke about carrot is has always been that he's perfect so he avoids becoming like a mary sue gary stew type unbearably perfect hero um, and it's odd to have another character in the same book who sort of interacting with Carrot who sort of occupies a, a, a similar role. But I, I just I, I love so many of the parts of them, just these little one liners and allusions that speak to this um oh, this this uh, spirit of intellectual adventure and um like dreamlike capacity for pushing the boundaries of what is thought of as a possible the part where he he asks only for apprentices yeah. because he doesn't want men who know the limit of the possible uh the part where uh, the dean he says i wouldn't call myself a genius so the dean's like oh well, why do we you know uh want you if you're not a genius and as they're talking he sketches a perfect circle mm-hmm. uh just like idly um and actually in a similar way to carrot it is uh, that you also have these little moments with carrot that are um ambiguous as to whether he's being naive or he's actually being a lot more knowing and just pretending to be yeah. naive you, you you do wonder that with uh with leonard there where you, you think oh see you know just you know he's not going to come out and argue with, with the dean but you you have a lovely bit with carrot earlier when rinswin's talking about the time he fell off the disc and he goes my whole uh carrots you know there, oh, imagine what we'll see. And Rincewind's starting to stomp all over his enthusiasm. And he says, oh, I remember falling off the disc. It was horrible. My whole life flashed before my eyes. And <laughs> Carrot says, perhaps we will see something more interesting this time. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Although I will say with uh, Leonard de Quirm, I don't feel like there's much ambiguity there for me personally. I don't read it as, uh, like, I do legitimately read it as him just being very, very naive. It's like, oh, I don't want to assume I'm a genius here. And I can definitely see him as being the kind of character who would very idly draw a circle, a perfect circle the way that he does. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. get any sense of, like, venom or anything. like, Or not venom, I suppose, but, like, no sense of, like, pompousness. Even though there's one point where he says... Um, it might not be in this book. It might have been in an earlier book where, uh, oh no, I think it is in this book where he says, what makes you so confident, sir? And he says, well, I've never had a reason not to be. And, uh, you know, he just, he's, he's described as someone like he's, he's never been wrong. He's never really had a reason to feel like not feel confident because he's just always been able to have things work out for him. So that's a really interesting quirk to have somebody who's like so intelligent that like, 
they're confident but not cocky. Like they're very confident in their own motives and intelligence, but in no way are they just like think they're better than everyone else. They're just kind of like they just don't consider other people in a way, you know, which is quite nice. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I love the. So I. Sorry. I, I, sorry I, was, I was going to say I love the uh di- the dynamic between uh Leonard Carrot and uh Leonard Quorum because. It has this great balance of personalities that you can always see two of them going off to kind of wonder about the other two in a way. Like I could see Mm -hmm. Leonard and Carrot like, you know, going off in this adventure and a couple kind of side-eyeing Rincewind because, oh, he's like a coward. Like, oh, he's so different from us. But by the same token, you have that bit with Rincewind and Carrot like on the moon and they're like, oh, where's Leonard? Oh, he's over there painting. And like, do you think he's tested this? Or, you know, they're both kind of questioning his genius, like both in a kind of slightly nervous way. And again, by the same token, you can also see Rincewind and Leonard like looking at Carrot, who's so noble and so like uh, preoccupied with justice and, uh, you know, honor that they're kind of just a bit, there's that wonderful bit when they're when they're up on the moon and they're looking down at the disc and Carrot says about how up here there's no borders, uh, and then Rincewind and Leonard completely misunderstand. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> Leonard talking about like like growing forests in the shape of names of countries, so you'll be able to see when you when you fly over them. Or Rincewind's like, oh, you know, you could make ri- like roads, but paint them so that people could see the border. And and Carrot tries to uh, you know tries to explain to them, but. Yeah, it just can't. Yeah, that's great. Like that dynamic but, is fantastic. Like it's a real dream team that they managed to assemble for this short story, where they could have just said, "Okay, let's get some fan favorites." And like, if they had done fan favorites, like, I can kind of imagine them throwing in the witches or something at that point. But it's smart to throw mm-hmm. in. Like Leonard the Quorum is a fun side character, but he might not have been the first choice. Not in terms. Of, I mean, from a narrative point of view, it does make sense to have him creating this machine, but like. First fan service. He's not exactly someone that we were like, oh, we've got to have him in there because he'll be great. But he does work so well off the other two that it's just, yeah, it works really well. Yeah, um, and and I was thinking with him, I was like, what's what's the difference here between him and and Lucy, who uh, we we both weren't all that mad about in our Keep the Time episode. We sort of felt that the narrative, the you know, Pratchett kind of heaped a bit too much praise on him and it, and came off just quite. Uh, you know, obnoxious or, or unconvincing. And I was thinking like like Leonard is a similar character who like the narrative goes at great lengths to assure us of his brilliance and his genius. Um and I, I think there's a, like a couple of things about it. I think one, Leonard is a much more recognizable archetype. Like like he's clearly a reference to Leonardo da Vinci. But in general he's that sort of mad you know, uh ap- like good mad mm. scientist um archetype that we say we see in like da vinci we see in like i don't know very much about einstein of the, the real life man but when you see him represented on television and films he's kind of like also represented that way of being like charming and you know almost omnipotent in his knowledge but very mm. absent-minded so i i think there's i don't know like leonard feels more sort of filled out that way and even if none of us um I don't think any of us have known like a genius of his of his um magnitude in our real lives. We probably encountered people like that in particular fields who, whether it's like art or work or whatever, are so dedicated to it, who are so brilliant at it, and have that quality of being kind of 
completely blissfully ignorant about huge other swathes of the world while they're working at this thing mm-hmm. that they love, you know? And there's something sort of charming and frustrating uh, and almost awe-inspiring about it uh, at the same time. I, I think, too, that... Uh, well, sorry, go I on. think a lot of that is just based on when... Well, comparing him to Lutzi, like our main frustration there was that he has all these heaps of praise like piled onto him and we just never feel any justification for that. There's that brief moment at the end where he overpowers the new time and it's like, oh, okay, so wow, he, he is like this great person, but it's like, it's over in a heartbeat, like, you know, and that's it. Whereas with Leonard de Quorum, we're getting these constant little reminders that he is a genius or like little senses of intrigue, little tidbits that like, oh, wow, is that something you could potentially do? Or it's like, wow, you've considered this before? Like it's, it's, he's just a better uh, crafted character. Like what I really, one part I really enjoyed about this is, um, and I think this is something that harkens a bit back to Mr. Teatama from Hogfather uh like so terry pratchett has used this method before but when veterinary asks him we need to get to Corey celeste uh leonard kind of stops to think for a second says okay i think i've got it says wow that was very quick says oh well i've thought about this kind of thing before and you get that again in hogfather with mr taya time is like okay we need you to kill uh the hogfather says okay i think i can do it you wait sorry you thought of a way to do that oh yes and death and the tooth fairy he's just oh i've thought about this before like he's a great thinker so it's just it's a really well put together little aspect of the character, I think. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, um, Leonard, it's very much we're, we're shown what a genius he is as much or more so than we're told. Uh, like we see it kind of moving the, the plot along. I think, too, there's like uh, a big part of of this um, this book is magic and, and and a role of magic um and you you have it for one like it, it's a book we said about like the transition or like waving goodbye to that early uh wild sword and sorcery discworld and in that in those early books magic played a much more mm. prominent role um and here you have at the start when ponder explains that blowing up the gods will destroy magic i think it is is it like lord downey or one of the other guild leaders you know, thinks for a moment, well, this isn't such a bad thing. Those wizards will be brought back down mm. to size. And basically the suggestion is that like like an orderly, civilized, like Morpork world can move along without magic with no problem. And Ponder explains to him, no, you know, we need magic to live. Um, And it to, to me, it sort of feels like a proxy for the role of like fantasy and speculative yeah. fiction and literature. Uh, like of why we need it. But also just that, that sense of, of wonder in, in real life. And... um. I, Leonard, uh, how would you put it? Like, it's, it's an odd thing. Like, Leonard is very much, uh, like he's a scientist, essentially. And so often in all spheres of life, science and like, you know, magic, religion, mysticism are seen as these opposing, uh, you know, mm. parts of, uh, like a kind of binary opposition. But this is sort of undercut in a lot of nice ways throughout this. Like, Leonard, more than anyone, exhibits that, um, that capacity for for wonder and for magical thinking, like whether it's him drawing up these very scientific sketches of these creatures that may not even exist when Rincewind talks about them, um, whether it's like that wonderful confrontation he has with the gods, uh, where is it they say um, he says, 
you gave me wings when you showed me the when you showed me boards, said Laird to Querm. I just made what I saw. The rest of the gods said nothing, like many professionally religious people, and they were pretty professionally they were pretty professional being gods. They tended towards unease in the presence of the unashamedly <laughs> spiritual. Yeah. Yeah, and and this is like so it's it's more a kind of I suppose a contrast between like closed mindedness and open mindedness or like cynicism and wonder than it is a simple like religion science uh, uh you know boundary like how it's a, I think it's a small thing but it's a nice like thing with the we like the gods feature prominently in this but it isn't really a deconstruction of religion along the lines of small gods or even something like uh, Carpe Gigalum with the, the mm-hmm. mightly oats bits um, but it does definitely take some nice, nicely aimed shots at them, like how they, um, how would you put it, like, they, they kind of, their existence at the center of magic on the disc speaks to this essential human need for a sense of wonder and the, the numinous and the transcendent, like the, something, this feeling of something beyond. And so often in, you know, real life, it's like that's the space religion yeah. fills for people. And this is a kind of like, uh, uh, um, I suppose, like a sign of often like how inadequately it fills that mm. space, you know, like that maybe some people there, their religious faith does give them this capacity for, for wonder and a sense of transcendent. But for others, it's this thing that constricts them and just, you know, feels like a a, spirit, a celestial bureaucracy. And that's very much what the, the gods of the yeah, Discworld yeah. are, you know. Um, and how petty they appear next to Leonard's kind of pure wonder shows how, like, yeah, how this human need is often met really unsatisfactorily on an institutional level. There's another lovely bit when, um, uh, you know, you have veterinary and ponder where the, the people on the kite are back in touch with the lads on the disc. And Ponder's sort of patronizing the veterinary because he he, talk, he refers to veterinaries like like arts or you know humanities uh, education and now he's a scientist oh, like yeah. he'll handle this. Um, but veterinary knows that uh, um, Leonard's classical illusions like what is it like Prince something's tiller is like like essentially a, mm. an autopilot and it's a reference to a a story. Um. So like this, this, uh, and then you have later Ponder's interest in the geology of the moon. Like when when he's talking about oh, if they bring back rocks from the moon, it'll teach us more about history and veterinary like, the history <laughs> of the moon. No one lives on the moon. How is their history? You know. Um. So I mean, I really like it because uh, like I'm obviously in my uh, professional life on the um, humanities arts end of things, uh, and maybe have kind of like. The occasional feelings of bitterness about how much more uh, funding and uh, attention the uh, sciences and, and so on get, but I don't think they should necessarily be op- oppositions. Like nor always yeah. were they. I think um, science used to be referred to as like natural <laughs> philosophy. Uh, and having this, like I think veterinaries and ponders uh, opposition feels like 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 an exaggeration of that of uh, those kind of arguments. Like um, veterinary sort of uh, showing ponders denigration of a like classical arts-based education as being closed-minded but also ponder having this like his kind of um i suppose his uh uh sense of wonder in science bringing him this capacity for enthusiasm and delight about like the history of the moon that veterinary as someone who deals purely in people just like can't understand uh i think it's really nice it's like again like doing that 
thing that the best of Disc World does that Pratchett does so well, where he poses, you know, seemingly opposing or contradictory questions and doesn't seem to come down on one side or the other, but poses them in such an evocative, thought provoking way that it doesn't feel wishy washy either that he's not giving yeah, us an answer. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. And I enjoy that as well in the way that um uh it's portrayed with Cohen and uh the horde in like the fact that they want to be remembered, but you know, when you look at this book, so much of what they do is just them talking about what they that they want to be. Re- I mean, it's all like the entire plot revolves around this one act that they're doing, but they do very little in this other than just like walk up a mountain, which you know in itself is pretty impressive. I mean, at one point they're literally walking vertically up the mountain because the magic field is so strong there, which is very cool in of itself. But they have this one moment where they're going through a cave. And uh, they encounter a ton of monsters and all this terrible, terrible stuff is like happening in there. Like someone gets eaten at one stage. I think it's Boy Willie and he has to cut himself out of the fish or something on the way back out. And it's just, I found it very interesting that at that point, it kind of, the plot, like as they enter the cave, the plot jumps away from them and then it comes back to afterwards and they're talking about how they want to be remembered. Mm -hmm. And it's... um, it's very, uh, I, I'm trying to, sorry, I'm rambling a little bit now, but I just, I, I thought that bit was interesting because there's a focus on us, there's a focus on how you're remembered, but it doesn't say plainly what it is. <sighs> sorry, I'm trying to formulate my thoughts here, but basically, you know, it's it's showing. As, as Led Zeppelin said, ramble <laughs> on, my friend, it's, ramble um, on. It's not, they're not exactly faithful uh, narrators here. They're not like you being uh, remembered in a perfectly faithful way because they're influencing how they are remembered. And in a way, I sort of feel like Terry Pratchett is doing that as well. Like, it feels very wistful in a way when like Cohen dies. He's like, oh my, well, Cohen supposedly dies. And uh, you think, oh, but he was a great hero. It's like the sword and sorceries and all that sort of thing of like the previous Discworld books. But if you think back, like, even though there was more of it, there still wasn't that much. There was still, like, a lot of focus on, like, you know, the cutting jibes and the politics, even in earlier books. So it's a, it's a little bit manipulative in that way, but in a good way. I'm not saying this is a bad thing, per se, by any means. It's just something I found interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose in real life, like, so often those myths of this kind of age of heroes and adventurers are sort of exaggerated. Like they exist in a much realer sense in songs and stories than yeah. they ever actually did. Yeah. It's true. Um, I, I, I love the, uh, when they, when they go to the moon, right. And like the moon dragons are there. And at first I was like, Oh, that's a bit mm. convenient. You know, like there's these dragons, they live on the moon. That we've never heard of. Um, but then just as it goes on, I was just like, again, like, I don't know if we've done this intentionally, but I, I got, I have a book, uh, I don't know why I'm looking at my bookshelf to get it, it's not like anyone other than you is going to be able to see it, um, but it's called, uh, it's called like, like Lost Moon, I think, and it's, it's an anthology of, uh, short stories written about, like, adventures on the moon before mankind had oh, actually cool. got to the moon. So, some of them are filled with these, like, crazy ideas of what the moon's going to be like um and i just i saw the the all this, the way pratchett depicts the disc world moon as like a throwback mm. to that like of 
it's you know when you're writing a, a science those early days of science fiction where you don't have to be bound by reality or what we know is on the moon or on mars or or isn't for that matter you can just kind of throw build whatever world you want and like when he has moon vegetation that looks silvery that the dragons eat this idea of and this 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 one particular is like so true of yeah. all those early uh science fiction uh, moon landing sorry said the idea of the gravity's lighter so it only holds down <laughs> light things like air but it doesn't hold down people like that, I, I, you know i just kind of I was like, okay, forget about it. I don't think this is day so back anymore. This is great. I'm 100% yeah, on board. I did find myself thinking about, like, you know, that very early science fiction movie, The Journey to the Moon one. Um, mm-hmm. I can't remember. Was it Melville who did that? Uh, Herman Melville? Uh, no, he was your man who wrote what oh, we God, did. Oh, God, sorry. Yes, why am I thinking <laughs> Herman Melville? God, I can't, I can't remember his name. I remember it was, like, I think it was a French movie. But, um... But yeah, I, I found myself. It was one thing that I felt was a bit. I wish they'd included like a reference to that. You know that famous picture of like the moon and it's got a face, but it's got the spaceship like sticking out inside. Of its face. Yeah, yeah. I would have loved something like that. I'm like, I don't know. Maybe if they had, I'm trying to think whose face would fit for the moon, but I can't think of anyone now at the moment. I felt like that could have been something that could have worked really well there. Um, it's got a. There's an interesting tone to the the this entire. But I think I always. Although I feel like it's going for kind of a romp, kind of an adventure sort of thing, the vibe I get from it, and a lot of this is down to evil Harry Dredd and his henchmen, is more of like a Saturday morning cartoon than an actual uh, adventure thing, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's so like funny and quirky and like you feel like the stakes are high, but it doesn't, to me, maybe it's because the book is shorter. It doesn't actually feel like the stakes are very high. Um, Um. Yeah, yeah, like the, uh, I mean, it's partly as a consequence of we hang out with the horde so much, and uh, we don't really see them as huge like villains and threats. I think that early bit when they're discussing like Morpork about what will happen if they don't stop the horde, that gets across the sense of stakes. Mm. But yeah, like I suppose you you um it I don't know if you ever really doubt as to whether they will like you know they will end up blowing up to this world or not you know what i mean like like you kind of think oh no they're not going to go through with it uh yeah but i don't know like i mean considering like that the entire story hinges on this it just feels like i don't know i felt it felt a little light in terms like i mean say like thief of time for example that was a book that we had some problems with but one thing it did get across was this sense of epicness, you know, there was like mm-hmm. really high stakes there. There was a lot of drama behind it. And like a lot of the books do that very, very well. Most of them, in fact. But this is one of the few that even though like you could say the stakes have never been higher at this stage, it didn't feel like that at any point. Like um, it was, well, it did at certain points. At the start, like you said, it sets it up very well. Like with all the leaders meeting up and talking about then, but um, it dips a little. It's not by any means a deal breaker it's not like you know it doesn't ruin the book by any sense in any sense at all it's just it's a different tone than I, what i would have expected for this particular narrative you know yeah um it's actually it's it's my main issue with uh this book which which i'm sure listeners have uh, gotten a sense of is, is one i really really like is that i wish it was longer um because i think there's so much more uh there's so much parts and i i want um more of like i'd 
I'd like more of Vina. She gets a wonderful introductory scene where those uh, brigands or, um, you know, bandits find mm. her with the giant sword and then realize the giant sword is also some huge fella that she's after killing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And you have these bits of her acting like kind of like a mammy to all the, the whores cooking and, and stuff like that. But, you know, being a kind of a very uh, stern, hard nose sort of mammy and she gets a nice bit at the end, but you don't. I don't know. I, I I feel like when she was introduced, you think she's going to be a bigger part of the narrative than she is, and it feels like like Pratchett maybe thought so too. I'd like more of of Rincewind and yeah, Carrot, the librarian, and and Leonard in Dun Manifestin. Yeah. You know, like they literally like the first moment we see them there is when they run up to confront Cohen and all. Like we we get sort of a bit of Cohen and the, the gods walking through the streets and trying to find their way there. I think it would have been fun to see. Um, Rincewind and, and Carrot and the others doing similarly and I think it would have sort of filled it out I don't know just that the pacing of it feels odd that we literally only see them arrive uh, right at the the optimum moment right at the kind of last second as it were I yeah. think the start too while it's quite deftly handled like um, his his, his uh, so after we have the bit about uh, the Karen Amber and Rewad's name but essentially the Prometheus guy um, we have just like it cuts to the disc, and we have um a few bits, and then it's like veterinary standing in unseen university. Everyone's arguing. You you you're told that everyone has come to more part to argue about this. I'd li- like I'd like to see more of that. Particularly, um, it's a pity we don't see Two Flower being the one to uh, come from yeah. the Agatian Empire to tell. Veterinary and the others that what the yeah, horde are up to. That would have been nice, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's now now that yeah. I'm thinking about it, like I mean, I did like this a lot, but it's set up very well. But it does feel like it speeds towards a conclusion very, very quickly after a certain point. Like once, um, once uh, Rincewind, Carrot, and Leonard and the librarian get to the moon. After that, that's pretty much it. Like they have that one bit where they crash into Corey Celeste, but that's pretty much it for them. And the Horde, they have, like, yeah, they meet uh, Vina and they meet uh, Evil Harry Dread. But other than that, there's not, like, I would have loved if there was, like, another little detour that they had along the way. Because not a huge amount happens to them. And you're right, yeah, Vina definitely should have featured some more. And Evil Harry Dread, even though he is a ton of fun, and I love that he's in it because he's probably my favorite character in this particular book. He's a great side character. And I love his henchmen, but... Yeah, again, he feels a little superfluous. The only reason he's there is like to uh, betray Cohen and the Horde to the gods. But even that feels a little unnecessary. Like, what difference does it make, really? I can't see... Like, the gods can see them anyway, so... Well, I was about to say, it feels like the main difference is it makes it a little shorter. That, you know, once they get in there, we know immediately that the gods are going to... uh... Uh, catch them and will kind of speed up to that mm. confrontation rather than them maybe like sneaking their way around done manifesting for a longer time before yeah. being this, cut out. This just, I mean, again, it's not something that I, I hate or dislike actively. I just, I definitely feel that at some point about halfway through the book, I felt like Terry Pratchett just said, okay, I need to cut this short. Yeah, I, I think it's the thing speeding it, um, towards the conclusion very quickly. Slightly, it, it suffers a little from as well is that uh, I remember we talked in The Fifth Elephant how Pratchett's villains usually have to be defeated two ways. Like, they have to be defeated 
you know, physically or bested in the sense of, you know, being killed or captured or uh, defeated in a battle. And they have to be defeated conceptually, like what they stand for has to be shown to be uh, lacking or wrong or hypocritical mm. or whatever. And we, we said in the fifth elephant that works so well because he essentially splits this in two, like Wolfgang's the, the physical battle and who's uh, a D is the, um, the conceptual battle. Uh, and here we very we have the conceptual one mm. in the sense of um, sort of in the sense of the, the Horde's confrontation with the gods and the stuff they say to them. Like I really like that bit where the lady comes up and uh, Cohen just you know dismisses her and says like I'm not going to be thankful to you. I remember all the times where you weren't there and I saw people die in battle because they didn't got get lucky or you know because their enemy got lucky. Um, I think that's great. Like this, she's. Particularly because this book evokes so much of the early Discworld, and she was a character uh, who kind of conveyed this sort of like, um, a, yeah, uh, awe-inspiring sense of serene power early on. That to see someone melt off at her like that, um, and it carries, yeah, it just carries real force in it too. Like it suddenly, you do have those moments where amid all the crazy imagery of these owl lads committing these acts of like sword and sorcery heroism he just he, he'll snap the narrative back down and remind you that they're very old men looking at their immortality like cohen sitting on that barrow um like the great bit at the end that a lovely illustration at the end of the bard just sitting in barbarian clothes weeping while playing his his harp um yeah. and this is another bit of it like where you've That's previously really had this uh what's going is a really silly scene with them dressed as all the different makey uppy gods then became something really awesome and cool when Cohen uh, chops the fate's dice in half, then snaps back down to, like, what they're all there for is that, like, yeah. they're owl lads who know they're facing death and have seen so many of their friends die over the years. Uh, so, yeah, so I like that a lot. Um, so you have that as kind of the conceptual thing, and you also have Rincewind and Carrot talking down... Uh, the horde from blowing up the disc as another like conceptual thing. It's this idea of like, well, what's your legacy worth if there's no one left to remember it? Um, and weirdly, kind of going back to what Vetinari mm. raises at the start when he says about, oh, like who are these heroes? You know, they're only remembered as like as heroic just because they've killed and they're essentially like bullies with charisma. Um, you weirdly have that reconciled where these heroes, who barbarian heroes, who see themselves as like apart from the rest of society, make the ultimate sacrifice for society rather than get, get rid of it. But you don't... Yeah. yeah. But you don't really have a like a battle, a proper poetic. big confrontation at the end. Um, the closest you come, and as I said, like it's absolutely amazing, is that bit with uh, with uh, Carrot and the Horde. And yeah. I, I just think it's, it's so good because there's so much going on. In, like, it lasts about two pages. Uh, on yeah um in in my copy here and i mean it's it's this moment of transition between uh the old heroes of the disc that the horde and the like the kind of new hero represented by by carrot and the rest of the watch um but too it's it's about like what the different kinds of heroes they are like uh what is it um i'm uh I'm being patient, or out of respect for your grey hairs, um, and they all laugh at him, and then they say like, oh, is it, "Like, how much do you earn? Um, uh, is it, uh, how much? How much did I pay you, boy?" Said Caleb. 
$43 a month, Mr. Ripper, with allowances. The Horde burst out laughing like that, like Carrot is, he's the hero who's kind of in society and is doing this for society. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to be as like cool or charismatic. And, you know, he's certainly going to be much more humble and, and um, down at heel in a way uh, they could never understand. You know, like if it was them, they'd probably just whatever, kill Vimes in veterinary, rob all the money and um, and run off. And, and that like amazing bit of said like I I love all all these bits where they allude to the fact that Carrot really knows he's the king of Magmore Fork but um is is going to push back against anyone doing it and uh funny thing, said Cohen. But I heard tell that down in Magmore Fork there's some watchman who's really heir to the throne, but keeps very quiet about it because he likes being a watchman. Uh Oh dear, taught the horde, kings in disguise. That was code material right there. Carrot met Cohen's gaze. Never heard of him, he said. <laughs> to die for $43 a month, said Cohen, holding the gaze. A man's got to be very, very stupid or very, very brave. <laughs> yeah, I think what's really important about that scene, and you're right, it is a very good scene, but what's really important there is that there isn't a conflict. Like, if there was, like, a bit of a fight there, that wouldn't sit well with the entire message that, like, Terry Pratchett is trying to get across here, that it is very much an acceptance of like this new order of the world like because if if they had fought then it would be like you know the sword and sorcery of the older books and the new civilized and political satire of the later books it wouldn't be a marriage it would be like a very very messy and horrible like splitting up and it just wouldn't work so it's nice yeah the horde are able to stand back and say okay we know our time is done here. You're you're the new hero in inverted commas. And it's also the fact that, because like, as you said, Carrot is the hero of society and therefore he can't be a martyr. He can't be like a golden figure. So the fact, like he is to us, like we know his history, we know his background. But the fact that he insists on being the, the ordinary people, being part of ordinary society, that's really important because if he wasn't, he couldn't possibly stand for what he does. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and you're so right. If they had a battle, I mean, I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but it would have been kind of saying one of these eras of the Discworld is better than the other one. Yeah, yeah. Um But yeah, I just I, I love those I I know I'm a sucker for like um those moments where you just have like like this really uh naively pure kind of hero just saying like like no i'm making a stand and uh being more kind of um uh un like showily selfless and um yeah brave like i don't know when it, it, it's done well it's just kind of like it, it warms every cockle in my mm. cold blackened cynical heart well, I mean, that might be an issue that you could say of this book if you're looking at it that way, in that it doesn't really have a villain at all. Because, like, the no. Horde clearly aren't a villain because we empathize with them so much because, you know, they, uh, their main shtick here is they want a legacy, they want to be remembered. And, like, it's very hard not to look at that with great sympathy and or empathy. And by the same token, you couldn't really say the gods are the villains because they're just doing their jobs basically they're not doing anything what you'd exactly call villainous they're just there being gods so you know and like yeah they might punish leonard like but again this is just something that 
like it or not, gods do. Some sometimes they just like give terrible, terrible tasks to people. That's just that's Christianity for you, <laughs> or you know whatever. Well, they they represent, yeah, I think, a like a lack of fairness or um, justice in the world. But you're right; it's kind of seen as something that's inherent to the world, or at least to the world they you know they currently have done anything like. Carrot has that line to them when they say, "Do you believe in the gods?" And oh, one moment, I look this up. Uh, tell me, uh, I should have a booming voice here. Tell me, said Blindio, is there a god, a policeman? No, sir, said Carrot. Coppers would be far too suspicious of anyone calling themselves a god, a policeman, to believe in one. But are you a god-fearing man? What I've seen of them certainly frightens the life out of me, sir. And my commander always says, when we go about our business in the city. So when you look at the state of mankind, you are forced to accept the reality of the gods. The gods smiled their approval at this, which was indeed an accurate quotation. Gods have little use for irony. Um, so, well, I mean, what that's kind of saying is like that, like, yeah, the gods here are a kind of petty, uh, small-minded, vicious bunch, but so is a lot of the world we see on the disc. And mm. as we know from previous Discworld books, the gods only exist because uh, on the back of people's belief of them so mm. it's sort of like there's a case of the, the disc is getting the gods it deserves yeah. even if it's if they're not the ones they want or you know true characters like leonard and, and, and carrot um and to a certain extent the bard you have this sense of like um that there there could be more there could be a kind of fairer more joy-filled more wondrous world but um it's not going to be easily achieved. Mm. And I, I do personally like the way that the gods are portrayed here because, you know, at the start of the book, when you see that, like, the entire plot is based on the Silver Horde trying to destroy the gods, that places a lot of weight and value on the gods. But in actual fact, they don't come across as someone, or, or they don't come across as people who, they don't feel like overarching, you know, incredibly important parts of every life like they are important they are something that like the disc needs but the fact that they look down on the disc is isn't symbolic it's just something quite physical if you know what mm -hmm. i mean like uh the gods don't rule every aspect of the people on the disc's lives and that very much comes across by the end of the book when they're very much like joked about made fun of even in like kind of somewhat respectful ways like the bard has that moment where he meets his god and he basically Logan. Yeah, yeah, yeah and he just kind of like starts like yelling at him and screaming at him and tries to kill him uh carrot has that wonderful sly dig in at them leonard has this like faint well not even faint he has somewhat respect to them but like basically proves that he is far more uh, intelligent than any of them can ever be. The Horde nearly succeeds in killing them, and the only reason they stop is because they realize they'll be destroying the world if they do. Like, almost everybody who comes and approaches the gods is better than the gods in some way or another, which I really, mm. really like. <laughs> yeah, so I think if, if you don't have anything more to add, will we just move on to... We had one Twitter comment before we get to, to ranking this fella. Oh, yeah, sure, sure. Um, so, uh, this is from Wizard of the White Tulip, and he says, the Excellent story name. of, it is, it really is, isn't it? <laughs> um, you should see his, uh, his, his profile pic really fits the name brilliantly. Um, he says, the story of this one reminded me of Eric. It's fun. There's nothing bad about it. It doesn't do much more than that, but I don't think it's trying to. 
However, the art was delightful and I did enjoy seeing so many of the characters all together in one story. Um, I, I said I, I disagreed with him that I thought it was more substantial than Eric. Um, and I, I would, I would stand by that, but I, you know, I, I suppose I still do. And there's a lot about it I like, but kind of given what we've talked about, I, I, I think I see his point a little more and that does feel mm. like, like that being like this, like villainless, uh, romp that's, yeah, really compressed in its its storytelling in the same way that Eric is. Yeah, it's it's very fun and like it is it, very. This is going to be the very much a similar problem that we had with Eric in that it's very hard to gauge it compared to the rest of the novels because it doesn't feel like a novel. Um, yeah, it's it it is basically like a short story with a bit more uh, length. Basically, it's um yeah, it's it's. God, I'm not looking forward to trying to rank this one now, to be honest with you. It's going to be so difficult because it's good. Like, and it's like some of the bad, like uh, when you were mentioning The Last Continent, I'm like, this is definitely better than The Last Continent. But, oh God, it's just, there's just not enough to it to really like compare it to most of the novels. So I don't know. Yeah. You know, we, we'll see when we get to The Shepherd's Crown, which is uh, obviously the last Discworld book, and it's been one I've been holding off reading um, in anticipation of reading it for the podcast. Mm. But I almost felt reading this. That, are you Have you read much Agatha Christie? The what? Have you read much Agatha Christie? Uh, not really, you know, no. Hercule Poirot, Miss Marple. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big uh, Poirot fan. And well, apparently during World War Two, she was obviously quite concerned about you know, whether she'd even lived through it. So she wrote, like, the last Poirot story, like one where, uh, you know, like it kind of brings the whole thing to a definitive end, but put it in a vault somewhere. And then even though she survived through World War II and wrote many books afterwards, it was only then after she died that they released the last one. And kind of, even though she had written it, I suppose, 20, 30 years before she actually died, that kind of, like, became canonically the, the last uh, Poirot. And I almost, um like... I was reading this feeling like, oh, I, I kind of wish Pratchett had done something like this here. Like, I, yeah. I don't blame him for not, particularly as it's like his first collaboration with Paul Kidby in this way. I can see how he'd just be so excited and want to get out. But this felt like such a good end to the Discworld. Like, in it being yeah. the, that Avenger-style crossover you mentioned where you have so many different characters. And uh, Wizard of White Tulip said, again, like a big part of the fun is seeing all of them um, interact together. Um yeah, like I, I thought like, oh, this would have been a really nice way to end it. But having said that, like we said at the start, it also works as a very nice transition piece from the old Discworld to the, to the new. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I suppose I'll see when we reach uh, Shepherd's Crown as to whether, I don't know, I uh, go on thinking this should have been the, the final book. Yeah, it definitely has that vibe about it all, right? And like, it's understandable because he has more ideas and like he has some there's some really, really excellent books coming up after this. So it's understandable. Like it would have been, uh, it would have been bad if like, this was like one of the last really good books. And after this, like, you know, it all went severely downhill. Like there is some, like we, we both read snuff and we didn't enjoy that very much. So there is definitely a decline after this a little bit. Oh, oh, I I don't mean that like, this should be the last one he wrote in the sense of he wouldn't write any more than this. Uh, No, I know know what you mean. Yeah. Like like, more than like he, like, hold off releasing this one until he finishes writing or you know as was sadly the case in real life he died and mm. then this comes out to kind of put a capper on all of the ones after but yeah. you know uh, i said that uh it's more kind of like wistful wondering than me and, and i may not i may not feel the uh 
feel the same way by the end of it. I just do want to give a sign off to this book, which is um oh I owe to the blogger uh Vacuous Wastrel who is does his own Discworld um reread series that's really informative and I'd uh, I advise anyone to have a look at it. But he he um thinks Pratchett got the idea from G.K. Chesterton's poem, The Last Hero. And I haven't read much G.K. Chesterton. In fact, I don't think I've read any, but apparently he's a huge influence on Pratchett. Oh, wow. This okay. is, um, yeah, this is the uh, end of the first stanza of the, the Chesterton's poem, The Last Hero. The heavens are bowed about my head, shouting like seraph wars, with rains that might put out the sun and clean the sky of stars. Rains like the fall of ruined seas from secret worlds above. The roaring of the rains of God, none but the lonely love. Feast in my halls, O foeman, and eat and drink and drain. You never loved the sun in heaven as I love the rain. Um, and I think that's that's uh, very, very true of the kind of like uh, elegaic feelings Cohen is having by the end of the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, I just I absolutely love that. Like I'm kind of that poem alone made me want to read more Chesterton. I remember, um, yeah, often kind of like start reciting it to myself as I'm wandering through the rain, <laughs> trying to feel like a hero when actually I'm just a... Uh, just don't, uh, f- don't fling yourself off the mountains. That's shadow. all I ask anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Only will if I'm carrying enough explosives to blow up the world. <laughs> nice. Right, well, I suppose you should probably go about uh, ranking this bad boy, eh? Yes, indeed. Um, so, so as you said, this is going to be difficult. There are um, there are some that it's definitely better than. I mean, I do think you have to take it as a package. You have to take it with illustrations and all. Like you can't just have it as the story by itself. Um, I think it's particularly impressive how well it manages to uh, use both story and illustrations, like to such great effect. It's a shame that the. Uh, the narrative is so rushed towards the end and it feels like it's lacking a little something there, but it doesn't ruin the book by any means. Like it's flawed, mm-hmm. um, but it's still a bloody good romp. So it kind of just remains to be seen how well it compares to like, I suppose some of the not top books, but some of the other, like other quite hand, high standard books that we have maybe in the, I don't know, lower twenties. Like for example, I'm looking at the last continent now that's a 22 and I, definitely rank it above that one. Oh, I mean I'd I'd put it like well above even that. I'd have it around at like say it's got Masquerade at eight and Reaper Man at twelve and for me it falls somewhere around there. Um Ooh, I don't know if I'd rank it higher than Reaper Man anyway. That was such like remember how much we loved that book when we were reading it. Like that was so rock solid. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite rock solid. I mean it's got really high highs, but Reaper Man's very uneven with those three plots kinda running True. along parallel to one another only but, sort of you know barely intersecting with, with one another mm. um and the, the like while the, the other ones have their strengths the death one kind of far outweighs them and you almost find yourself as a reader a little frustrated by the fact that oh why are we hearing more about death <laughs> like uh, how, it, it does i think it bears some similarities in that reaper man and last hero are both books who are like jam-packed with characters and stuff you know and this we have three and again three kind of things running parallel you have the the horde and the bard you have the the guys on the kite and you have like a mission control back at ankh morpork with veterinary and the unseen university wizards mm. um 
and I think they're much better connected than the uh, the tree and Reaper Man. Like uh, the the wizards, Windlepoons, and the um, First Star Club and Death, all like they all sort of make sense within the same world because the the first two arise from the fact that you know Death uh, Death has been given the sack essentially, mm. but they don't. Um, you know, they don't even know they're going on. Whereas here, you have a a kind of like like nested plot where the heroes go off to blow up the gods. The guys on the kite are following the heroes. The people at Mission Control are giving advice to the people on the kite because, you know, they're sort of the constant reminder of them being the fate of the world in the balance. Well, while the storylines in Reaper Man might not have been, like, so well interconnected, I still really enjoyed them, like, a great amount. But by the same token, like, in The Last Hero, like, the Mission Control bit, I once the kite leaves, I pretty much did not care about that at all. I had no interest. Um, and the Horde meanders a lot going up Corey Celeste. Like, it's just a lot of chatting. And, like, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, some of it can be quite uh, profound, the stuff that they're saying. But it's still a little meandering, especially towards the end. Like, I personally, I wouldn't rank it above Reaper Man, uh, just to have to say. That's that's my mm-hmm. take on it. But, um, like, I'm looking at these now, and I probably put it around the 15, 16 mark around there. So that's moving pictures, weird sisters. That's around that kind of yeah, area. Yeah, so see, um, okay, well, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll take you it below Reaper Man, but uh, what, what's putting it below, say, say where, where to just go, go below Reaper Man at, at 13 and then be above Witches Abroad and Carpe Jugalum? What would, what would keep you from putting Last Hero above those two? Uh, well, see, Witches Abroad, I remember, is, like, obviously such good... Fo- this is the thing. See, we're getting to this point now where opinions <laughs> are getting a little bit crossed here. Like, it's more so that I was looking at moving pictures, which, I, if you remember, I absolutely loved, and I really don't want yeah. to put it above that. But I could see myself putting it above Witches Abroad. So this is where things get a little bit messy. So, um... I suppose... Uh, I suppose just, uh, see, Witches Abroad isn't very well paced, but Carpe Jugulum does a very good job there. So, oh, yeah, I'm trying to figure this. Let me see there. So, see, for me, it would it would go up again, like like structure wise, it would go up to them. Where Witches Abroad, yeah, it's, it's I like that. There's a lot I really love about Witches Abroad, but it isn't very well paced in that you have this very meandering, lengthy start of them getting to Genoa before the plot kicks off, and he does a decent job of sort of like dropping references to what to anticipate with like kind of cutting back and forth with what's going on in Genoa, but it's still there's a, a fair amount of wheel spinning and warming up before we take off. Mm. And Carpe Jugalum was another one where it's just like packed full of too much stuff. Like the the whole business with um Varence and the uh the uh well the Nack McFeagal and like, you know, saving Lonker Castle from the henchmen of the vampires like just feels so uh, superfluous after you've had the main confrontation with the with the vampires, and in that confrontation too, while it has a type on, it goes on for ages. Do you remember, like they kind of they beat them about three or four different ways before they finally admit they're beaten. Mm. That's that's fair, but I don't think I'd rank it above Witches Abroad because yeah, fair enough that it's badly paced in that like it just meanders for a really long time before it really gets going. But I think the last hero sort of has the opposite problem, which is, in my opinion, much worse. 
because you know it's it starts off very well it's got a really solid beginning but then it rushes so fast that you don't really get much time to really enjoy the ending whereas at least with like witches abroad you know it's it meanders but it's very enjoyable meandering and then it kicks off into the main plot where they think so it's good good and then picks up and it gets better whereas in this one it's like really good really good and then it's kind of peters out a little bit so if i was to rank the two i'd give it to witches abroad because even though they both have pacing issues i much rather have a good ending than a good beginning well i mean you i I, it strikes me that the issues are something similar because uh your big issue which is abroad was i remember when we done it was um how sort of lily weatherwax collapses into being this uh you know like generic uh, mustache twirling villain um and here in uh last hero because we have no villain like that's the part of the ending that's rushed like i think everything that comes after that is, is great like the heroes uh taking the uh, horses from the valkyries and riding off into the sunset mm. not admitting they're dead is the, like the perfect way to send uh, to send them off um leonard kind of the confrontation they uh, leonard and carrot have with the gods where the gods want to punish leonard for coming up with this amazing invention because it plays some both them and how leonard responds to that um by painting the chapel but even the way like he and, and carrot are talking to them I think it's fantastic too, but it's that moment that we don't really have a, a confrontation. You know, we have Rincewind and uh, Carrot talking the Horde down from what they're going to do. So I suppose, like, what's worse in your view? Like, the fact that we have what you consider the kind of um, anticlimactic villain in uh, um, which is Abroad, who's kind of set up quite strongly but then falls flat, or that we have no villain in... Uh, the last hero, but it never really promised one. Well, it's not so much that, like, I like the idea of having no villain, like, if it's, you know, done well, but it's, it, it's so fast. Like, you know, the fact that, um, yeah, it has that moment where the Silver Horse steal the horses and they also they visit the the guy who stole the fire and the bit with uh, uh, Leonard de Quirin painting, like, the Temple of the Small Gods. But this all happens, like, so so quickly that we don't get time to really enjoy it at all so you know i it's like yeah i do like all those scenes but it's you know there's such a long build-up to actually getting up there and then you've got like what maybe 10 pages where all this stuff happens and then it's over so uh for me personally i would just i i couldn't bring myself to put it above rich which is abroad because like that is uh, see Witches Abroad like it's yeah it has an anticlimactic villain but at least it still has like a proper climax whereas this one it's it's just too rushed in my opinion yeah I, I, I just don't think I could put it above Witches Abroad I could I could add up I could probably put it above Carpe Juggalone but I couldn't put it above Witches Abroad um All right. Uh, <laughs> only partly because I want to get up and have a shower. <laughs> <laughs> so this is this always happens. We always have to kind of like I can see where you'd be coming from. Like there's a lot of good stuff in this, and like it's a great collaboration. Um, it's uh, like it does a lot of things very impressively. The last hero, like it's amazing they managed to bring so many characters together and make it work. Um, but which is abroad is. It manages to continue a dynamic and like, you know, it's already got one book's worth 
of um, chemistry to work upon. So, and it's, it shows it's very evident and uh, at least it, it's the fact that it builds towards an actual conclusion, even if it's patchy, it still does that. Um, whereas in this one, like it's done solidly and then rushed. And for me, it's much less satisfying to have that, to have like, you know, a solid beginning. And then suddenly it just feels like very suddenly Terry Patch is like, oh, do you know what? I was going to make a novel out of this, but no, let's just make it shorter. Like it's very, very uneven that one, like in my opinion. Yeah. Fair enough. I don't think you'll quite catch the uh, the blowback about this one that you did about your small gods heresy. <laughs> uh, I mean, Hashtag Steve is wrong about small gods. <laughs> see, with this one, it was always going to be difficult, yeah, difficult because it's not... Ah, uh, yeah, it's, not, it's, it not a... it's so unlike any of the others. Yeah. It's, it's very hard to uh, to place. Uh, like, it, it even feels weird. I, I could easily see someone doing, like, a podcast similar to ours or, like, a blog reread series where they just skip over this one yeah like, and i was even thinking you know in, in the way that you would yeah. troll bridge or like to see in little fishes but um yeah i, I don't know I'm, I'm glad we didn't skip over it because I, I really enjoyed it so new number 14 below which is abroad and above carpe Gaelum, the last hero mm. i'm glad uh, i'm glad that we have something to separate those two because i was grouping those two together on every single list for the longest time it's like <laughs> yeah they're they're very very similar but uh, yeah, I'm glad that we have this in there. Right. Uh, so next on uh, next month we'll be tackling the amazing Morris and his educated rodents, um, the first uh, explicitly YA Discworld um, novel. I say explicitly because I you know, made the point there were more than equal rights written today. They'd probably be marketed as YA. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. Like I I remember hearing that one on the audiobook. And at the time, it was like another Discworld book to me. You know, I didn't kind of make any distinction with it. And later, to my immense regret, I remember making that distinction with the Tiffany books, like the first of which I really enjoyed. But then I remember thinking, oh, they're like, I was not a lot of times like, oh, they're for teenagers. So mm. I, I won't read them, you know, and I've, I've, I really enjoyed We Free Man. I've heard the rest of them are really good. So I'm looking forward to getting to them in this. Uh, but yeah, I'll be interested to see, like, I know whether there's any noticeable difference in like the another pro style or the pacing or what will it be in morris when we get to it it's also a, a kind of a another uh standalone the first we've had since um the truth where it's like original Discworld characters uh rather than recurring ones yeah. so it'll be interesting yeah i remember reading it like a long time ago and i remember i i didn't remember it at all as being a Discworld book i thought it was a completely separate book altogether i mean obviously it's got a very similar style but i remember I don't think there's any... I think I read the first couple of pages there a little while ago. And I think there's like a very, very throwaway reference to Vimes. Like someone... Like I think Morris... Maurice, Morris, sorry. Uh, saying that, oh, we had to get out of Ag Morpork because the captain of the watch said that... Or the commander of the watch said that you'd hang us by our tail or something like that, you know? But mm-hmm. overall, I think it is very standalone, which is a good thing to have, you know, with um, these young adult novels for sure. I guess we'll see next time yeah we will cross that bridge when we come to it until then thank you very much for listening and um, you can get in touch with us on twitter or facebook if you look up radio morepork you can email us at radio morepork at gmail.com and um, you can leave us a, a rating or review on, on itunes or whatever your podcast uh, uh, app is of choice that would be a we very much appreciate that we we do the support the love of it so uh, the more people get to hear it the uh, the the better i'm um, actually uh, we we did 
I, I assume this is kind of my fault. I was very diligent checking this. I assumed I'd get some email from iTunes or from whoever if someone left us a review. We have had a few nice ones, uh, but that I only found out when I was just kind of like Googling Radio Morpork in the way that you Google your own name when you get bored. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I'll um, uh, thank you so much to everyone who, who left those. It's um, uh, really, really lovely of you. Um, so we'll co- cover those in a little bit of detail on the uh, in the next episode. Yeah, but for now, uh, all there is left to say is goodbye, friends. Yes, so I have been the second last hero, Steve, and this column you have been the last hero. So yeah, I've, I've been I've been the hero of the epilogue, ah, the hero that comes after the last hero. There you go, the hero of the appendix, uh, the last hero Genesis or the last hero Revelations, the poorly thought out final chapter of the trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> uh,